You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we're going to talk about effective communication during gameplay. So during the game, we always talk about communication, how to increase that communication. Uh, What type of communication should we be doing uh, during games? We're going to dive into all that in this episode, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after a number of years coaching competitive volleyball and as the head coach of the biggest college in Canada, I've become obsessed with helping coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to coach efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is... The Volleyball by Design Podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 127 of the Volleyball by Design Podcast. How is everyone doing out there today? Another week of volleyball for my new listeners. What's going on? My name is Coach Brian Singh, and I'm the host of the podcast. And if you are a regular listener, as always, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you're a new listener, um, the goal of every podcast episode is to deliver something of value, some tangible things that you can take back to your gym right away and apply uh, to your team and see results. That's what this is. This isn't a podcast where I'm just going to be talking for an hour and you may take one takeaway. This is a podcast where you're going to be given step by step tangible things that you can take back to your gym and apply. That's the goal of the episode and the goal of the podcast is to be able to apply strategies. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I, the first thing I got to say is I got I to gotta apologize a little bit. The first time in two and a half years, first time in two and a half years, I did not release an episode last week, Monday. It was, let me tell you, that was one of the toughest things I think I've had to do in a long time because I was... You know, every you guys know this. All, for all my regular listeners, you know, every Monday I drop a new episode. And I have been consistent for 126 episodes, two and a half years worth of episodes. I have never missed a week. And I got to say, last week, last week was my first week that I missed. And it was, it was so weird. Um, the reason I missed it was because it was a combination of a lot of things. I had a really busy volleyball schedule. I had some DVA things that I had to take care of. Uh, we had a lot of family things. My, my kids were just recovering from uh, being sick, and there was a lot. And it was like, normally I, I, I try to record my episodes you know, well in advance or beforehand, but after last week's episode or two weeks ago with Dan Lewis, by the way, if you haven't got a chance to listen to the previous episode with Dan Lewis, you absolutely must. It was one of the best episodes that I've dropped so far. So make sure you listen to that. But, you know, it was, what was it? It was like nine, 10 o'clock at night. I was exhausted. I was just, it was, I had a game. Um, I think we came back from a road trip. Yeah, last week we came back from a road trip. So it was a road trip on top of that. I had DVA stuff that I had to take care of. I had a DVA call my DVA members. You know, I had my family. Um, I was still kind of tired from from the road trip. And it was like 9, 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, man, I don't know. I, I don't think I can do this episode tonight. And I'm like, do you think... You think my listeners would be okay if I took a if I just took a one night like a one week break where I didn't drop an episode and then you know I, 
I, I was battling back and forth, and I'm, if I had done that episode, it would have it would have been really bad. I think you guys, I mean, you got my you got listeners are pretty nice out there. I think you'd have been okay, but it wouldn't have, it would not have been a good episode. And then I was like, let me take a shower and see if I get energy. I took a shower and I was even more tired. And then I and then I my wife was like, you know what, you should do it. <laughs> she and she first kind of said, yeah, I, I I understand, and she's like. Oh, but you you haven't missed one in two and a half years. Is there, are you really gonna miss one now? And she was even telling me to do it, and I I almost I tried, and then I was I was making notes for the episode, and I was falling asleep making notes for the episode, and I said, you know what? As much as I want to do it, I think I think my listeners would be okay that I was consistent for two and a half years. That for the first Monday I I don't, so I didn't. So I ended up, you know, not dropping an episode, which many of you probably were wondering why, like what's going on? And, you know, some of you may have been kept refreshing and I'm sorry if that that was you, if you kept refreshing, waiting for the episode to drop, or maybe you thought it was a, um, you know, some kind of time delay or something like that. But unfortunately, uh, yeah, I needed, I needed a break. I need a, I need a mental, I just need to sleep, rejuvenate and get ready for the next week. So that's what it was. So I, I took, I took that time to get back into my groove and I'm here back with another episode for you guys. Hopefully this is a good one that you can take back to your gym. And this episode, I had a one-on-one with a coach uh, last week or the week before. And one of the questions that he asked me was a great question. That was, you know, we always talk about communication during games, like communication. I want you guys to talk more. I want you guys to be communicating out there. But he's like, what exactly does that mean? Like what type of communication should my players be doing on the court? That's a great question because there is a lot that we can talk about and there are certain things that you can actually over communicate as well and we, we don't want to run into that issue. So we had a great conversation about this and that's what I wanted to bring to the podcast because I'm sure a lot of coaches want to know what is you know what is the right type of communication. We always talk about, hey, I want you guys to talk more in games. Come on, you're not, you're not talking out there. You're not, da, 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 da. And, and sometimes we make it confused by that. Because if you think about it, if you look at you know look at the pro level for example, if you look at the pro level, they communicate, but there's not a, as much communication as you may think, you know. So what what kind of level of communication do we need? How do we communicate effectively? What types of things should we should we be communicating? Well, I'm gonna address that in today's episode. So let's start off by a pet peeve of mine, okay? And the pet peeve of mine. Is when I hear, oh, by the way, sorry, um, episode 65, episode 65 talks a little bit about some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. It's also a communication episode. I did that back in, you know, early of 2021. It's episode 65, so you may want to take a listen to that one as well. This kind of adds into today's episode. But uh, basically, let's let's just talk about my pet peeve. Let's, talk, let's, start, let's start there. So I have this pet peeve where I hear some coaches and if you're a coach that does this this is you know no, nothing towards you right it's it's a common mistake that we make this calling mine so i hear a lot of coaches sometimes say you know when, when players whose ball is that well you got to call it. it's the first one who calls it the first one that calls mine that's the player's ball now let me ask you a question a ball is served in a game and it after contact is made it probably takes one or two seconds for that ball to be on our side of the court and on the ground. It is not a lot. The ball is not in the air for a long time. So if you are playing a good server or a team that serves pretty tough 
and that ball is coming over at a pretty good velocity. By the time you realize it's coming to your zone, by the time you say mine, the informa- all that information for you to like read the serve, then call mine, and then go to the ball. Mind you, what if two people call mine at the same time? Then what do you do? What if the ball was split between two players and they both called mine? Well, then whose ball is it then? Well, then some coaches say whoever called it first. Really? In a matter of seconds, you're going to be able to interpret and listen to who called it first and then make that decision and go past the ball? It's, it's tough. You can't do that. So coaches, if you have run into the, uh, in the situation where you've been telling your players whoever calls it first is the one that's going to get it, we have to stop right there because that is a recipe for disaster. It's not about who calls it first. It's about who it's about what player is responsible for that ball based on passing zones and seams. Okay? And that's important. So let's just take it a step back here. So if we are in serve receive before that server contacts the ball, okay? The first thing that our players do is they call their seam. That is the most important communication that is needed when we are receiving the ball for the first time. We have to know our seams. We have to know who is responsible for what ball. And if you're a coach out there who doesn't know what a seam is, that's okay. A seam is the distance between the passers as well as the distance between the passer and the sideline. Okay? Not so much distance, but the area. That's a better way of describing it. The area. So if you're running a three person passing rotation, so three passers, then how many seams are you going to have? Think about that. Three passers, how many seams? Well, if you said four, you are correct. So we have a seam from the passer in position one to the sideline. Then we have a seam between the passer and six and one. Then we have a seam between the passer and five and six. And then we have a seam from the passer and five to the sideline. So there are four seams in our game. Okay, four seams. Now, when we call our seams, we have to understand that that is the area that we're responsible for. So that communication is really, really effective because now we've distinguished what area we're responsible for. And I always like to say, you know, your libero should be taking both seams unless you have, unless you know a server has a certain tendency that you may want to, you know, do something else with that. But liberos, ideally, I want my libero taking both seams. That's just one. Okay, the second piece of communication you can do during a game before serve is passers communicate location of serve if you know it ahead of time. So let's say in, in, at the higher level, you may know this, even at certain levels, if you know that the player that's about to serve likes to float, and you know the player that's about to serve likes to, likes to float to the 6-1 seam. Well, when that player goes up to serve, guess what we're saying? We're like, hey, Float to six, watch the 6-1 seam, watch the 6-1 seam. And the players on the bench are also, they may have their notes on the bench and they're also letting the guy, letting the players know, hey, on the court, hey, watch the 6-1 seam, float it to 6-1 seam. And that's really effective because sometimes, you know, at the higher level especially, we know the tendencies of the servers before the game. Right? If you're if you're a coach that's prepared, even in the high school and club system, if you play a team again, you should know where each player likes to serve, like the tendencies they like to serve. If you're not doing that ahead of time, I really implore you to do it because it gives you so much so much of an advantage on the pass by knowing where 
the servers are gonna serve. Every server has tendencies, every server likes a certain serve, and it's important to know what that is. So we'll be telling our, our players, hey, watch this, you know, the six one flow, etc. That information helps our passers be more effective on the pass. Okay. Now, when the server initi initiates the toss, if it's a spin serve or if it's a float serve, we call that out. We call it out to make sure that we, it, that, that by verbalizing that cue helps us put us in a better position to pass. And I'll give you an example. So if it's a float, so if that player tosses the ball up and everyone yells floater, float, then our passers know to move up, to take a step up and get ready to step into that float serve. If it's a spin serve, our players will know to take a step back because no one's spinning a tack line. So we're going to play the higher percentage shot, which is, you know, further back than rather further front. So these are the types of things that we are communicating on the serve. All right. Now, before the server even uh, serves the ball, another thing we have to communicate is whatever the play call is. And that is nonverbal communication, by the way. That's when the setter goes up to the net, hides the play call in his shirt, and with his fingers, he initiates a play call. And normally that play call is towards uh, to the middle. So the middle knows what route to run. And then that way, everyone else on the team knows what route the middle's running so they can go accordingly. It could also be a specific play for a left side as well. So it, it's not just the middle, but majority of play calls revolve around the middle. And if you've ever attended my offensive workshop, you'll know that. If, you've, if you're a DVA member, I have an entire offensive training, which we talk about these, these things. So that's what the setter does before you know the serve is made. The last thing that I would say before this so there's a lot of communication here by the way so far before the serve is made and this is providing you're in serve receive okay this is not when we're serving this is not during rally this is all when we are in serve receive the other thing that i would mention is that making sure that yes i do want you to call a ball i never said that i i said my pet peeve is the only way of communicating whose ball it is by calling mine and the first person to call mine is their ball no no that's not what we do but we do call the ball absolutely now the goal is, and I've heard a very respectable coach say this, is to call the ball before it crosses your opponent's attack line. So the attack line on the other side of the court, when it crosses that attack line or at the moment right before it crosses the attack line, you should be going and calling for the ball. Because at that point, you know, well, at the very least, before it crosses the plane of the net. So let's, I, I like to say in between the attack line and the net on the other side. That's kind of where I want my, my players to call the ball. And the truth is, is once the server contacts the ball, you already know the two passes that are involved. Because if they're going cross court, then obviously the passer that's directly in front of them isn't going to be involved in the play. So you, there's one pa passer that's going to be out of the question as soon as the server contacts the ball. Once the contact is made, you can see the trajectory of the ball. You can get it. You can get a feel for the pace of the ball if it has a, you know, a lot of velocity on it, and obviously the direction of the ball. And that's when the, that's when it's really important for the passer to call it and go for that ball and execute on that pass. Okay, but again, this happens so fast on a serve, especially at the higher level, that sometimes you may not get to say mine. And I understand that at the at the at the pro level, collegiate, high collegiate level, no one's calling mine on a serve receive. They should, and you'll still hear it. Don't get me wrong; you'll still hear it, but you won't hear it as consistent because the ball is going so fast that it's 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 you're just you're passing it right away. So it's something to be aware of. And yes, I do encourage my players to call call it whether it's mine, I go here, it doesn't matter. And I encourage them to call before the ball crosses the plane of the net. But I do understand as a coach that sometimes that is not possible. But it's important for them to still practice that skill. Okay, 
Moving on. So these are all the communication things you can do prior to the serve and during the serve. Now, what if we're serving? Okay, so what if we are serving? What can we do to communicate effectively on the court when we're serving? Well, the first thing we can do is have our front court call out the setter. So my front court is gonna say, where is the setter? Is the setter front row or back row? So you may hear a common thing say, back row hands, front row hands. And what does that mean? What does this back row hands and front row hands mean? Well, it simply means this. If the setter is back row, we understand that there are no dumps possible, meaning the setter is gonna dump the ball over the net because they're back row, they can't do that. So one common thing you hear, back or hands, no dumps. Now verbalizing that is important because if the setter was front row and we said front court hands, watch dumps, that means a setter could potentially put the ball over instead of setting it. And it's important for my back row, especially my libero to know that the setter is front court. And it's especially important for my front court left side blocker to know as well because they're responsible for blocking the setter. And it's important to verbalize that. I mean, it's, it may sound silly. We're going to say it every single time, but it's important to verbalize that. And I actually take it a step further. As a coach, when I'm on the sideline and I see front court hands, I will let my libero and my blocker know. I will say, hey, Jay, Setter's got front, front court hands. And Jay looks at me and says, got it. I'll, I'll lock my, talk to my blogger. Hey, Sev, Sev, front court hands. You got him, right? You got number two or number whatever. Yep, I got it. So just, just that. I promise you, just that little bit of communication between myself and the players, that reassurance, it will help them be ready. It also, by the way, it also allows the setter, the opponent, your opponent setter to hear you say that as well. And that may deviate them from dumping. You know, we played a game last weekend where when we when we watched film on this team, the setter dumped the ball at least two or three times when we watched film on this team. Against our team, do you want, to, you want to know how many times the setter dumped the ball? Zero. Now, I'm not saying it's because of us, but I'm pretty sure we had some kind of influence on that decision because the setter heard me tell my players front core hands, watch dumps, and the setter also heard our players say, hey, watch dumps, front core hands. So just a little bit of reassurance there. You never know. You never know. That could, that could play a factor into why the setter didn't dump. But it's important for the setter to hear you say that as well as your teammates because that verbal cue will initiate, hey, I, had, I now have to protect the net front court with the setter and my back court is aware of it as well. Okay? The other thing we like to say too is, and we add on to that. We say, hey, front court hands, back court hands, three swingers, no dumps, or two swingers, no dumps. And it's nice to reiterate that because it's good for our defense to know how many hitters we're facing. Now, obviously, there are four hitters in our game, no matter what, there are four hitters in our game, but we just outline the front court hitters. And the last thing is the key. So key in on a player, you know, front court hands, key in on number two. Well, that means that front court hands, we got to watch dumps. And key in on number two is where the ball is likely going to go. They're their go-to guy in that rotation. And by verbalizing that, it allows all six players to be on the same page, be aware of who their go-to hitter is going to be. And it allows everyone to just have that sense of reassurance. It's, it's a sense of reassurance. You know, if we weren't communicating, I guarantee you, that there will be a rotation where you forget that the setter's front row. And then the setter dumps and you're like, oh, setter's front row. Or vice versa, the setter's back row and the ball is set tight or the ball is passed tight. The setter jumps and you jump with the setter, 
not realizing the setter's back row. So that's why it's important to continue to do it on every rotation because the minute you stop, and listen, I've seen this at the elementary level and I've seen this at the college level where teams will forget to verbalize where the setter is, the setter will dump and they will look at each other and say, was the setter front row? Setter was front row? And I'm like, yes, the setter was front row and we forgot to verbalize that, which means we weren't aware, we weren't prepared for that setter dump. And that can't happen, all right? That cannot happen. So we have uh, how many hitters? We have who the keys are. And then also when we're serving, the middle blocker is doing something as well. The middle blocker is telling the backcourt what they're taking away. So you may say, what does that mean? Well, as a middle blocker, you cannot block the entire court, right? If you're one-on-one with the middle attacker, you cannot block the entire court, right? You have to, you have to take, take something away. Now, as a coach, the best area to take away is area five because that's where majority of middles are comfortable swinging. Area one is a bit of a tougher shot because they have to cut the ball to area one, providing they're right-handed, which most middles are right-handed. So if you have a right-handed middle, five is the easier shot. One is the more difficult shot. So as a rule of thumb, if you're a middle blocker, taking away five is probably a good place to start. Because if the attacker hits six, you're still there to get a touch on the ball and slow it down, and you also have a six back defender there to play defense. So it's, it's, it, that's why I say take away five. Now, the reason you're telling your back row what you're taking away is because if you're taking away five, for example, then the player in position six is gonna move over closer to area one. Because they want to, they don't want to be behind the middle blocker. They want to be staggered to the right. Just like if you were a middle blocker and you were to take away one, then the player in position six will be shift over to the left because you're taking away position one. And taking away position one or taking away position five just means that's the area you're blocking. Okay. So really, really important to, for middles to communicate that with the back row. And they don't have to verbalize it. They just put a number behind their back. So when they're at the net, they can put either uh, a one, which means they're taking away one, or a five, which means they're taking away five. Okay? Really, really, really simple. Okay? Another cue that you can do, like, again, nonverbal cue in this case, is you can tell your server where to serve. Now, many times coaches will do this. Coaches may have a clipboard and they may tell the server where to serve. You know, other position, you know, it's three positions. It's, uh, you know, one, five, or six. So five, one, and then six is a closed fist. Also, your front court, your front court could potentially tell the server where to serve as well. Maybe they see a gap because they're front court. They, they have the best view of any kind of flaw in the passing seams or the passing rotation, and they can tell the server where to serve as well. Now, that, this, that is up to you if you want your, your players to be do, doing that, but you know that's just something that they can do. Okay? So those are, these are all the different things you can do when your team is serving. All right? You could also communicate watch overpass. You know, I always get to tell my guys, hey, we, if I know my, one of my really strong spinners are, are, are about to serve, I, I'll get my liberos or my backward defense, hey, watch the overpass. Watch the overpass, okay? Little things like that, you know? As a coach, I always like to just give my guys some confidence to, you know, I always like remind my middles, hey, T, you got, hey, T, Tristan's in my middle, like, hey, T, you got, uh, you got number 15, right? 
You know what he likes to do? He's like, yep, I got it. Like just just that little back and forth, just reassuring our guys and, and reminding them of their matchups and reminding them of certain things. You know, a player a player looks at me, hey, make sure you take, take that line away. He's like, okay, I got it. Yeah, got it, coach. Like just again, because sometimes they that just that verbal cue by, hey, making sure you take that line away, then they may be more intentional about where they set up their IDP, their initial defensive position, as opposed to maybe starting a little bit more inside where they got a lot more work to go outside to take that line away. Okay, so that's um that's some you know communication you can do when your team is serving. Now let's talk about during gameplay because during gameplay is just as important. So during gameplay, the major ones that I can think of uh, that I think are important is when your attacker goes up to swing, letting them know how many blockers they have. Okay, so if they have one blocker, you know if my if my left side Peter, hey, Peter, you got one. Peter, you got two. Peter, you got three. You got three. You got three. You know, like little things like that. That helps him make a decision when they're about to swing. If they know there's a one-on-one and they know, hey, one-on-one, all they got to do is see the block in their peripheral and they're going the opposite way. If they have a double block, they at least they can hear you say you got two and then they can see in their peripheral where that's coming and they, if they have a sharp cross or they're going high off hands. But seeing that is important. All right. I'm rather verbalizing that is important. Letting your attackers know how many blockers they have. Also, if your blocker is recycling, or if the blo- if the ball goes off the blocker's hands, uh, I mean, if the attacker is recycling, sorry, not the blocker, if the attacker is recycling, or the ball goes off the blocker's hands and we're there to cover, we have to let the attacker know. So like liberos, this is the common one, liberos. When libero, when you call, hey, you got two, you got two, and that attacker hits the ball, you have to let him know that I'm that you're there for the dig. So a simple example is like, hey, you got two, you got two. Then the attacker attacks it. I got the dig. I'm here. Dig, dig, dig. I'm here. Dig. And little things like that. Boom. That way, when the blocker comes down, they're not reaching for the ball and trying to hit it up because that's where errors happen. They know you're there, so they may get out of the way and get ready to swing again, which is what you want them to be. You want them to do that. The the worst thing is you want to have blockers you know, reach back or attackers reach back to get to the ball. Same thing with blocking, by the way. So if you have, you know, two guys blocking and you're covering the tips, you got to let your blockers know, hey, I got your tip. I got your tip. Simple thing like that. And I would actually, I encourage my guys to use names. Don't just say, I got your tip. I got your tip. Use names. Because when you, when they hear their name being called, that's intentional. And that they can register a lot faster when they're coming down off the block not to do anything. You know, for example, you got a double block going and everyone yells tip, you know, tip, which is which is what they should be doing. And I'm playing the, you know, the pins as a defender. I'm in position one or five. I will say the names. I'll be like, you know, hey, Tristan, I got I got the tip. I got the tip. Jay, I got the tip. I got the tip. So they hear their name. I got the tip. And they know that, okay, I can, I'm just going to come straight down. My guy behind me has a tip. That's called effective communication. It's communication with intentional, with in, with, uh, with intention, not rather not intention. The blockers now don't have to come back. And mind, mind you, blockers should not be turning around anyways when they're coming down off the block, but it happens all the time. And it, that's why this helps. Okay? So telling the blockers you're behind them on certain things, yelling out for tip and acting accordingly. All right? These are all important things. Okay? Another important gameplay uh, communication is, and I, I really like this, is making sure you're letting the setter know you're available. So when you when that ball goes up to the setter, the setter should be hearing four hitters or lack thereof, depending on your situation. You know, for example, if you're a middle and 
you're coming down from a block and you can't get to the setter in time. And a simple, I'm out, I'm out. Mikey, I'm out. If your setter's name is Mikey. Mikey, I'm out, I'm out. And the middle, you have no middle, no middle. Like something like that. Like that's simple. That's letting your setter know that you're not going to be there. So they not they should not set you. Because the worst thing is they think you're behind them. They set you behind them and you're nowhere near the ball. So letting your setter know you're out is important. You know, also as a left side, if you pass as a left side and you think you're not going to be able to get out in time, you could let the setter know I'm out or you could let the setter know, hey, high ball, high ball, right? Or tempo, tempo, if you can get out. See, those simple communication is good because if you say high ball, the setter knows you're going to need more time to get out. So they give you a high ball. That's effective communication because you're allowing the setter to know your hitting option and know also what kind of hitting option you are. You know what I'm saying? So like little things like that, but I should hear four hitters, you know, pipe, left side, right side, C ball, whatever the situation is, you got to be communicating, especially middles, you know, middles that can't, let's say for example, a middle, you know, they're running a 51 and the middle can't get to the 51 in time, but the middle can run a push ball or a, or a shooting the gap. Well, they could let the setter know, hey, hey, I, I'm shooting, I'm shooting. Hey, push, push, push. Those, those, those key verbal cues will let the setter know, oh, I got, I got, it. I got my middle. My middle is six feet away from me. I can still hit him. Really, really simple, but very, very effective. So that's effective during gameplay. Making sure that your attackers are communicating effectively with your setter. Okay. The other thing too, um, and I and I like this too, is the setter. Yes. Okay. The setter is responsible for the second ball, but sometimes the setter can't get to the second ball. Now. Here's where I hear coaches have this have this conversation is if the setter can't get to the ball, the setter has to call help. And I understand the logic behind that. But here's the reality. The ball is passed. The setter attempts to get to the ball and then realizes they can't get to it and call, calls help. And then what happens? Then it's too late. How many times does that happen? Where the setter doesn't call doesn't call help in time and you get mad at the setter. When really the setter was trying to get there and then realized they couldn't and then call help and it was too late. So we have to teach our players to understand what is a non-settable ball by the setter. And those are normally balls that are passed high into the backcourt. Setters can't get to that ball. So I train my athletes, and many coaches do as well, where... When you recognize a bad pass, the setter probably can't get to it in time to call it off and set the ball. Because let's be real, if you're passing a ball high in the backcourt, we have no pipe option. So I love where my libero can take that second ball or my the player in position six can take that second ball. And all they do is they call the setter off. And I, like, I, love, I love my players. They, they'll put their hands really, really wide and say, I got it, really loud get under the ball, and pop a nice out-of-system ball for one of the pin hitters. And that's important. So I don't want to say like the setter shouldn't call help coaches, but really it's we have to teach our players to know when to step in because the reality is we cannot rely on our setter to call help because every setter is trying to get to the ball, and when they realize they can, it's too late. And sometimes, sometimes they may call help right away, but we have to recognize, we have to teach our players to recognize those help situations and step in and take it. That way it takes the pressure off the setter. It allows our offense to run a lot more smoother and we can go from there, okay? So 
those are those are the main ones I want to talk about when it comes to during gameplay. Okay, I think um, that's I'll I'll leave it at that during gameplay. You know, calling the you know blocker, calling your attack, your tip coverage, letting the players know you're there. You know, things like that. Okay. Uh, the last thing that I'm going to mention is just coach communication, and I'll be really quick with this. So during games, coaches are obviously communicating with players on the court. The first sign of communication is nonverbal communication, so hand signals. That is between your setter and you predominantly, letting your setter know what to run. If you have, a, if you see something, I mean, I give my setter free reins to run everything that they want, but sometimes I may see something, so I'll, I'll let the setter know what the play call is by just signaling them that. Okay, that's one. Two, I also, and I mentioned this earlier, when I'm on the sideline, I want to be part of the communication. So like I, when they say front court hands, like sometimes if I don't hear it, I'll remind them, all right, where's my setter? I'll tell my players, hey, where's my setter? And they'll tell me, hey, front court hands, front court hands. So I, I, I sometimes initiate that conversation. I initiate that communication. And then I'll also say my players' names. And when they say front court hands, I'll be like, all right, Jay, my lib. I'll be like, all right, Jay, you got, you got dumps. And Jay looks at me and nods. I'm like, all right, Sav, that's your matchup number two. He looks at me, he nods. So we are in communication. And I'm also making sure that they know that I know who they're responsible for. I also want to make sure that they know that they're responsible for that. So that way it doesn't, we don't slip up. You know what? I know you may think this is repetitive, but the worst thing is, is you're communicating for the first 10 points and then one or two points you don't communicate and that's when they dump the ball. Or that's when there was a miscommunication on our part that we could have prevented by just simply continuing to be consistent in that communication. Every point, every single time the ball is served, every single time you know we pass, that, those are little ones that we go. And I'm even on the sideline yelling to my left side, hey, you got two, you got two. And like little things like that, that helps. And as a coach, even at the college level where my guys know how to communicate, as a coach, you're the leader. And if you can lead that way and they can see that, that you're part of the game with them and you're involved, then that, it, it, it's only positive things that can come out for that. Now, I'm not saying you don't, I'm not saying you have to do this. My, 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 my mentor, John Spraw, is very quiet on the bench. Um, he just watches and observes and says his piece when he needs to. He's not constantly in the game with them. And they perform great. But what I'm seeing is it doesn't hurt. They're not going to perform poorly. It can only be better by doing that. And then I'll take a break, a couple of points, and I won't say anything because they'll ha- they already have the communication going, the rhythm going. And then I'll say my piece once in a while when I have to. But, but that's pretty much it. So that's why I really believe that it's important for coaches to help with that communication. So it gives your players confidence and it helps them along the lines too, you know? Be, be that leader for them, okay? So... Let's just recap here. Okay, we talked a lot about communication in all different forms. So we started off by just reminding you that episode 65 is also a communication episode. Did it a couple years earlier, a little earlier in 2021. Um, also, my pet peeve of calling mine, okay? Calling the ball first is not an indication of whose ball it is on a serve receive. All right, I just want to, want to put that out there. Because we, because what happens when two people call it at the same time? We are, we're, we're pretty much done for it at that point. So it's about seams, and passing zones. Those are what it's about. It's about who's responsible for the seam, and if it crosses the player's passing zone, they take it, all right? So before the serve is initiated, we're calling our seam. We're also communicating the location of the serve, if you know it ahead of time. So if you know a player likes to float to the to the 6-1 seam, you're, you're letting everyone know, hey, watch the 6-1 float, watch the 6-1 float. When the server tosses the ball, if it's a float, you're going to yell float. If it's a spin, you're going to yell spin. And the reason we do that is to verbalize that so we can act on that verbal cue, such as moving up on the float or moving back on the spin. 
call the ball before it crosses your opponent's attack line. I've heard many coaches say this. And again, depending on the level you're at, this will become even more important at the younger age group. You know, when the ball is served, you already know at the moment of contact, as soon as it comes out of the player's hand, you know if it's going to be what two passes it's going to. And then the rest of it is about communicating that pass and going for it. Okay. And then also, also another thing before the serve is initiated, setter is going to make sure they do a play call to let everyone know what they're running. Okay. Now, if we are serving, making sure we're calling out the setter to watch front court hands or back court hands for dumps. Also, we call out how many hitters, you know, front court hands, two hitters, back court hands, three hitters. And those are the front court hitters only. And we're also identifying keys. So who, you know, what, what key player is on there, you know, whether we're keying in on this player or keying in on that player. You could also, you know, say, hey, watch the X. If you know the players like to run certain things, watch the tandem, watch the inside ball, watch the pipe. So you could also, uh, you know, verbalize common plays they might run out of certain rotations. All right. And also making sure the middle is telling the back court what they're taking away. We talked about the middle taking away five or taking away one. As mentioned, taking away five is probably the better play at the beginning, depending on who you're matched up against, to force them to make the more difficult one shot. Not to say they can't, but wait till they show you they can and then make a decision as you go along. All right. And then during gameplay, we talked about calling out how many blockers, recognizing tips, yelling that out, and making sure your blockers know you're behind them, communicating that on the dig as well as the block. Uh, calling, uh, calling off the setter when it when it's a bad pass in the back row. Attackers calling for the ball, especially the middle, letting the the middle has to let the setter know, you know, when they're in, when they're not, and things like that. And then from there, you're good to go. And the last thing I mentioned was coach communication. All right, coach communication, hand signals between your setters, uh, and also communicating with your players, depending on what you see as well. Be in the game with them; it will it will make a, a big difference. Okay, um, now. I, I, inside uh, inside DVA, I actually do a, an entire training on how to help your team improve their communication. So this is this was a, a um, an episode on the types of communication and what your players are supposed to be doing. Um, but I have a live training on how to increase communication, and it's in the coach's blueprint. So if you're a DVA member, um, definitely check that out. Um, and if you're not a DVA member and you'd like to be, head on over to digitalvolleyballacademy.com. The link is in the show notes as well to find out more information. And if you don't know what it is, it's basically my mentorship program for coaches all around the world where I invite you into my world where I can show you access. You get access to my practices, my film sessions, my games. Um, you get access to all the courses that I've created based on all the positions of the game. And, and you get access to my mentorship where we jump on coaching calls, where we dive into Q&A and live training. And you got me basically to help mentor you no matter where you are in your coaching journey. It's always nice to have someone that you can bounce ideas off of, reflect and learn from, as well as getting access to a really great group of coaches that you can post and get feedback from that as well. It's an amazing experience. And we have some of the best coaches in the world inside DVA. And I'm super proud of it. I started about two and a half years ago and um, it's it's grown quite a bit and I, and I love the results our coaches are seeing. So yeah, that's it for me. All right. I hope to see you guys uh, on a next week. I, well, I hope uh, I will. I will be seeing you guys next week. I'm not going to be missing any time anytime soon. I've already two and a half years running. It's going to be a while before I take another break, I promise. Uh, but yeah, and if you want, if you're interested in DVA, definitely go check out DVA at digitalvolleyballacademy.com. Uh, links in the show notes. And yeah, that's it for me. I will see you guys next week on another episode of the Volleyball by Design Podcast. Take care. All right, cue the music. Look, 
Are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training and instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days? When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.